Well, we are back with episode 49 of the Brew Theology Podcast, and this is Ryan. On this episode, you're going to be listening to Peter Rollins and Trip Fuller live at Grandma's House Brewery in the Mile High City. This was our pregame for Theology Beer Camp the night before, where we had Trip and Pete at Grandma's House in the back room with about 50 of our Denver Brew Theology people. What you won't hear in this audio are the conversations that we had in between each of their talks. This is a very different episode. You're going to be hearing a different audio feed because you'll get the background noise and the laughter and the chairs squeaking around. But it's a great time. And it's also uh, a little bit of a picture of what we got throughout the weekend. We're at Theology Beer Camp held here in Denver at Platte Park Church. We had 11 craft breweries, Barrels Beer Company, Seedstock, Fermantra, Boggy Draw, Wits End, River North, Platte Park, Grandma's House, Black Project, Declaration, and then we had some cider for the people who had a gluten allergy. So also, Adelita's Cocina y Cantina came and they catered some tacos for lunch one day. We had some Nixon's coffee. Needless to say, I was incredibly tired the next day. And I got I to gotta give it to my wife. for uh, she, she took off for a few days and, and watched the kids full time while I did this. Uh, but if you would like, if you'd like for Janelle and myself, also uh, Dan and any others to come to your city, your town, to put on an event, to, to do a brew theology session, to come to your church, even to do like a five-minute intro and set up a table in the back, we'd love to do so. We believe in what we're doing of brewing theology and creating healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pub communities uh, this is needed in our country, uh, around our cities and towns and our, all of our communities in such a polarized time such as this, to gather people together, to eyeball each other across the table, to see that humanity, to see that spark, and to find some common ground. And so if you like this episode, any of our episodes, uh, these are microcosms of what we do locally in our pub. Uh, but we would love uh, if you guys would go online, rate it, review it on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Also share that. Uh, online, we're at Twitter at Brew underscore Theology, with Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology. Make sure you check out the website, brewtheology.org. Look at the different ways in which you can partner and sponsor with us. We'd love for more local chapters to kind of come up and uh, coach you, give you the logo, give you some curriculum and a leader guide to get you on your way to brew up some theology and have a great community uh, that I think is making a difference in our world today. And so... Enjoy this episode, and we will see you soon. Peace. Tonight, uh, we have the odd couple. It is an Irish man, and it is a uh, North Carolinan who likes to drink a few beers here and there. This, this is uh, this guy, how, So some of you are here tonight because you actually know of Peter Rollins. And others of you are here because you know of Trip Fuller. Right, Trip? And others of you here because you actually just like the community and you do this thing of you drink and you talk theology. And so uh, just kind of going back over the years. Now, Pete and I have never, we've, we've met once, I think, but I've been following Pete's work for about seven years. I, I, uh, okay, it was the greatest day of Pete's life. And uh, cheers. He likes gin, by the way. Don't make him angry. He's Irish. So about seven years ago, uh, a guy by the name of Peter Rollins was talking at Mars Hill Church. And uh, back in the day, as an evangelical pastor back in the day, we were allowed to listen to Rob Bell before Rob Hell, Love Wins came out. And, uh, and that's back when we could talk about Pete's work in kind of public settings, but it allowed us as ministers and colleagues to talk about what he's talking about behind closed doors. And so if you've actually, if you've read any of Pete's books from How Not to Speak of God, he talks about God a lot, but he also talks about how not to talk about God, which is interesting. And he might talk about that tonight, or he might not. Uh, there's insurrection. He's got uh, the idolatry of God, the divine magician, and he's got a lot of online courses. And so if you've ever taken atheism for Lent, which I think a few of us have in here, it was a great course. And you can just tell your parents that, no, you did not become a real atheist. You became a Peter Rollins atheist. And, and then like, they're like, okay, do you still go to church? And as long as you say yes, then they're okay with that. So uh, Pete's been very influential in my life. And then there's been Trip Fuller, who's in line getting a beer. He might not be back in here for about 15 minutes. And Trip, about five years ago, started following his work on Homebrewed Christianity, which is a podcast. It's a network. These guys do a lot of amazing work by bringing in theologians and philosophers across the spectrum. So it made sense that a lot of us here in the Denver community found each other here because of the Homebrewed Network. And Tripp is also the author of Jesus. It's the book Jesus. He wrote a book on Jesus, Homebrewed's Guide to Jesus. 
And uh, my, my daughter, about 30 minutes ago, had him sign it with a mermaid. So he'll be doing signings later of mermaids. And it's uh, Lord, Lunatic, or Just Freaking Awesome, which that, the freaking part got taken out. It's actually a really good book. He's the editor of all of them. And uh, just how many of you guys, uh, how many of you have, have ever read any of Tripper Pete's stuff? Just kind of curious. So a few of you. How many of you heard them on podcasts? Okay, so this is going to be helpful. Now, I have some giveaways. Do we have, do we have the giveaways? They're in the car. So at the end of the night, you will get the giveaway. Just ask Janelle. We'll find that. So we'll, uh, these, are just, these are quotes that I've taken from their work, and they're not out of context. If you raise your hand, I'll point to you. And if you get it wrong, we don't have participation trophies. So Stephen will get your glass because he's been a hardworking guy all day long. Okay. So first one is, did Jesus have nocturnal emissions? The answer was yes. No, you, you know what? That's actually in a book quoted by one of these two guys. Uh, it, so you're wondering which one it was, but that's not the question. Who was it, but you don't get a glass for this one? And Dan cannot answer because Dan's read all of Pete, uh, Pete Intrip stuff. Did Jesus have nocturnal emissions? You're afraid to answer it because I said nocturnal emissions in the same. <laughs> all right, that, that's in Tripp's. So now you want to go read Tripp's book, His Guide to Jesus. Okay, so the first one is this. This quote is, faith is no longer shackled to the idea of something up there in a place that we will one day reach, but describes our loving embrace of this world we inhabit. Was that Trip or was that Pete? Well, you can't say it all at once. Raise your hand. There we go. It was not Trip. So Stephen gets the participation, your participation trophy. That was Pete. All right, next one. If God is at least as nice as Jesus... Dan, you cannot answer this one. Then God has, has to have been pursuing all people in all places with divine love. Was that Trip or was that Pete? That was Trip. All right, so we got the glasses. And then next, this is the last one. The gospel is not an idea, but rather a happening, an event. And the Christ event cannot be captured in a text or isolated in any one telling. It's not truth that you learn, but one that you encounter. And that is... It's not Pete. It's not Pete. All right, but Stephen, Stephen cannot get two glasses tonight. So that would be? Actually, it was Dan Rosado. No, no, it wasn't Dan, uh, but it could have been Dan. Uh, so here, here's, yeah. At the end of the night, after you listen to these guys talk, and uh, we don't really know where the night's going to lead us. We might have a post-game and a post-post-game, so we'll see where that leads us. But you'll want to go and you'll subscribe to Homebrew Christianity, as well as Peter Rollins' uh, Facebook page. Like it, follow it, and uh, there's a Patreon page as well. But without further ado, I'm going to grab Trip and get his beer. But Peter Rollins. So you're all going to die. Um, I hate to break it to you, but it is going to happen. And um, I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, now, I, this is very informal, so we can just chat. I'm going to say a few things. Tripp's going to say a few things. And then we're going to see where it goes. How many of you are here for the main event tomorrow and Saturday? Great. We're going to go a lot deeper. I mean, I've only got, like, I'm going to do 10 minutes. Tripp's going to do 10 minutes. I'm going to do... Uh, another 10 minutes, Trip's going to do 10 minutes. So it's, it's, you know, we're not going to get very deep tonight. So you have to go to the weekend. But I do tonight want to talk about the issue of death because it is something that affects most of us, right? It is coming. There's actually um, a beautiful Islamic parable that most of you will know that captures the inevitability of death. And uh, the story goes that this servant is working for a merchant in Baghdad. And one day the merchant says to the servant, go down to the markets and get some provisions for a party. So the servant goes down into the markets. He goes around the shops. He's picking up things. He's talking to passers-by. And then he brushes past this woman, dressed head to toe in black. And as they turn to face each other, he realizes that she is death. And this woman raises her finger and points at him and gives him this menacing stare. He goes white as a sheet and he runs back to the, the merchant. 
And he says to the merchant, I was among the people, you know, getting the, the provisions for tonight. And then I met death. And when she looked at me, I realized that she was out to get me. I realized that she was there for me. So the merchant says, well, listen, take my fastest horse and gallop as fast as you can north. If you don't stop, and if you go as fast as you can, and if you make sure that horse gallops as fast as it can go, you will reach the neighboring city of Samara by midnight. So immediately the servant gets on the fastest horse and takes off north. Well, the merchant, the merchant decides to go down into the marketplace and confront death and ask death why he is scaring his servant. He goes down and sure enough, after he's walked around, he sees her sitting in a coffee shop, having an espresso. And he sits down beside her and he says, what are you doing scaring my servant? What are you doing trying to terrify him? And death simply looks at the merchant and says, oh, no, no, no. I wasn't trying to scare him. I was just surprised. There he was walking through the markets, talking to people, idling along. And I'm thinking to myself, he has got to get his skates on. I have an appointment with him at midnight in Samara. Right. It's a great parable until you realize what it means and it's a bit depressing. We all have an appointment in Samara. Now, we do try to avoid this. And there are so many people who promise that you will never die. There are so many people who promise that you will never experience that, that death is possible to escape. Now, interestingly, I live in LA at the moment, and what's fascinating to me is if you want to hear a good sermon about escaping your body and traveling with the angels, knowing all things, escaping the decay of the world, you don't go to a Baptist church just listen to a TED talk, right? We'll be able to digitally download ourselves. We'll be able to, you know, all, well, it starts off, I mean, here, in a nutshell, this is escape velocity, right? Some people think that, you know, we will be able to extend lifespan by 20 or 30 years in the next, say, 10 years, which isn't an unreasonable thing to think. So we will maybe push lifespan to 100 or 120. And then the idea is, and by the way, if you're as old, I'm 44, and supposedly I've missed my chance. So I don't know if, I, if you're in your 20s, you know, supposedly you still have a, an opportunity to hit escape velocity. Escape velocity is when, so they, they find out how to increase lifespan by 20 or 30 years. And then in that space of time, they work out how to expand it another 20 or 30 years. And then in that space of time, they figure out how to expand it even more. And so what you basically do is if you hit the curve, death is always receding. You always postpone your appointment with death in Samara, right? Now, it goes even further than that because in post-humanist uh, philosophy, there are serious IT computer specialists uh, who are talking about the possibility of actually dematerializing our subjectivity. So we download ourselves in some form that we ultimately escape our bodies and eventually become pure light. Now, I am not talking about whether this is right or wrong or correct or not. I'm not, uh, I'm, that's not my expertise. But it's interesting that that those are the kind of claims you know, used to hear in church. And it would be interesting if the technicians and the biologists are able to cash the checks that religious churches have been writing for years. Right? Like, for me, this isn't interesting because life, the prolonging of life indefinitely, for me, has never been a theological question. That's always been a medical question. Whether, you know, extending life indefinitely that's for, the, that's for the scientists, that's for the technicians, that's for the biologists. It's interesting, and I wish them the best. 
There are lots of issues that come with those ideas, but we're not getting into them. But what this actually helps to do is clear the way for a much more interesting question. Uh, and it brings us to existentialism. Because the existentialist philosophers were never interested in death as that which ends life. They were interested in the idea of a death that inhabits life. Now, if I was a charismatic preacher and I could touch you in the forehead and you would live forever, right? I had this gift. I used to be a charismatic actually. I could, I could actually touch people and they'd fall over. It was great. I was really good at it. Um, so <laughs> I, maybe we should try it. Um, so touch you in the forehead. No, you're saying, no, no, no. You know, I can see you definitely fall over. I can tell. Um, no, I touch you in the forehead and, and you live forever. If you couldn't experience the depth and density of life, I wouldn't be a god, I'd be a devil. Heaven would be millions of people screaming for the end. Mere longevity doesn't make life meaningful any more than, than uh, brevity makes it meaningless, right? There is this idea that, that eternal life is something to do with a transformation in the quality of being right now. It's not, in a sense, a line that goes from here into the future. It's something that goes deep. So you experience a quality of life. Nietzsche understood this when he talked about the myth of um, Silencius, the, the, this king who captures a demon and then says to the demon, what is the secret of happiness? And the demon says, well, it's obvious. To never have been born. But you can't do that because you already exist. So all you can hope for is an early death. Right? Now, the reason why Nietzsche tells this story is he says, if you do not enjoy your life, then life is a suffering. It's something painful. And so the existential philosophers, they talked about death within life. Now, what is death within life? Death is just a word for nothingness. But it's a, it's a word for a very particular type of nothingness. It's a nothingness that is something, right? There are two types of nothing. There's a nothingness that is nothing and a nothingness that is something. Now, we experience this every day. There is a difference between not talking about something and not talking about something. Right? Like in, in Northern Ireland, people wouldn't talk about their Catholic neighbors, right? And they also wouldn't talk about their Buddhist neighbors. Now, you didn't talk about your Buddhist neighbors because you just didn't talk about it. You didn't know there were any Buddhist neighbors. But you didn't talk about your Catholic neighbors or your Protestant neighbors. That not talking was something, that was, it was something, it spoke something. Or in a relationship, there's a difference between not talking and not talking. Or, um, I, you know, if, if there's someone you love who was supposed to be here tonight, or actually someone you love who has died, or unrequited love, or someone who is a far way away, they're absent from you, and they're absent from me. Now, if they walked through that door right now, your heart would stop. Wouldn't do anything to me at all. They are the presence of an absence. Their absence is present. Your phone not ringing is louder than if it did. So there are two types of nothingness, and death is, the, and, you know, think about, by the way, the, the nothingness before life. That's a nothingness that is nothing. We don't worry about that. But then there's the nothingness that potentially awaits us. So even if death is an illusion, even if death is just a stepping stone to something else, those are the sacred promises, or death is something that we can conquer pretty much through technology or biology, the secular promises, even if one of these is true, we would still not get rid of the death that is within life. And that is the truly interesting thing. Not is there life after death, but is there life before death? What does that look like? Now, to, to really concretize what that means, and I'm just, that's all I'm going to try and do in this, first, in this first little talk, is just try to kind of uh, unpack what death within life means. Because we think of these as two separate things. When we're alive, we're not dead. This is what the Stoics say. When you're alive, you're not dead. 
and when you're dead, you're not alive. So technically, you know, a Stoic would say, like Epicurus, don't ever worry about death, because when death arrives, you're not on the scene. You're, you're nowhere to be found. And when you're on the scene, death isn't to be found. Never the twain shall meet, so don't worry about it. Now, just as an aside, a philosopher who I quite like, I have a guilty pleasure. I love honest conservatives. I, I read honest conservatives more than I read anybody else. Um, and uh, uh, someone I read sometimes is a guy called Gabriel Marcel, who is a French Catholic existentialist. And he, he wrote beautifully about how it's not our own death that is ultimately the difficult thing. It is the death of those we love. So you can come to terms with your own death, but when, when it comes to terms with the death of someone else, especially a child, because, uh, you know, often we are prepared for the death of our parents, but death of a child, you know, that's... And the reason why he, he philosophically expressed this was because one of his jobs uh, was to tell during, I think it was the First World War, to tell parents when their children had died. And so he had first-hand experience of the existential horror of that news. You know, he felt it and saw it firsthand, and it was a little bit of a critique of Heidegger, um, who's, who was obsessed with, you know, one's own death. But even if you come to terms with all of that, we have this idea of death within life. So what does that mean? Now, I can't give the background. I can't show the working out. This is like a maths talk where I give my answers without saying how I worked it out. So that's terrible. But um, what I want to say is that to be human is to live between uh, who you are and who you would like to be. So you live in a gap, a space. You don't, you're not just who you are. The weird thing about being human, for most of us, if you, you know, there's some exceptions, but psych psychosis and stuff, but um, for most of us, uh, we live in the gap between who we are and who we would like to be. And if I have a friendship or a relationship with you, I have a relationship with who you would like to be. It comes into the relationship in frustration or in hope or in any number of ways. We have ideal selves. Now, there's a little story that I think captures this, and it's in the Bible. I think it's in Matthew. It's about Jesus, and it says that Jesus took up golf. Um, and so what he did is... He bought all the best golfing equipment. He went to Northern Ireland, where there are some of the, the best golf courses in the world. I'm from Northern I'm not the guy from North Carolina, in case you were wondering which was which. Yeah. I actually am. I just put the accent on for effect, because uh, people like it. I'm actually from Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. Um, no. uh, Jesus buys all the best stuff, goes to Northern Ireland, goes to the North Coast. Um, and, you know, he, he's got the golfing gloves and whatever other paraphernalia, you, you know, the little golf court cart. I always feel that I should do research when I'm telling the stories. <laughs> I realize I know nothing about golf. He got the little small round things and whatever. And he sets up, you know, tees up. I knew that. He tees up the first ball. And Judas is there going, like, honestly, that you're, you're using an iron. It should be a wood. And then, you know, Paul, uh, Paul wasn't there. That was a trick for the theologians among us. Yeah. Um, Peter, uh, he says, uh, says, like, that swing's terrible. That swing's terrible. You're going you're gonna to slice the ball. And he's like, back off. I'm Jesus, right? Back off. So anyway, Jesus slices, but Peter's right. Thinks slices, goes right into the lake. And Jesus is like, oh, Jesus, right? So he <laughs> walks over. He walks on the water, walks on the water, and goes in, picks up the ball, brings it back, sets it up again, hits it again, slices it a second time, goes into the same lake. Jesus goes out, he walks on the water, he's going to pick it up, and this isle farmer's driving past in his tractor, right? This isle farmer, big red-cheeked guy, guy called Seamus, right? And Seamus, uh, some of you know Seamus. you know Seamus? That's great, I'll have to tell him. So Seamus is going along, and Seamus says, who does that guy think he is? Jesus Christ. And one of the disciples says, no, that is Jesus Christ. He thinks he's Rory McElroy, right? <laughs> now, in other words, yeah, these, 
everybody has an ideal ego, you know, whether, for me, it's James Bond. I've always loved him, because my mum watched James Bond obsessively when I was a kid, so I love James Bond. If I'm ever in a casino, I'm like, I walk around. I didn't know casinos were as depressing as they are till I moved to America. I thought it was going to be swanky. I'm walking around in my tuxedo, my, and people have got oxygen tanks. I'm like, this is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted, right? And interestingly, if you're ever in a casino, they don't have mirrors because they don't want you to see yourself and realize you don't look like your ideal image. So anyway, you're walking around your ideal image. We all have this, and we exist between the two. So we, in a sense, that's very frustrating. You know, we, you are not who you want to be. Actually, guilt is the, the theological name for that. All guilt is, is guilt is the experience of not being the ideal that you want to be. So the experience of guilt is the experience of living in, in the in-between. We also live between our conscious understanding of ourselves and our unconscious drives. There's another beautiful story from Northern Ireland I like about, it's actually about Seamus again. Because Seamus had this little ritual that he would do. He would go to this bar and he'd always order four pints of Guinness, right? Every time he'd order four pints of Guinness, he'd drink them all and then he'd leave. Now the barman never asked why. He just poured the four pints, fine. Well, one day, Seamus goes in and he orders three pints of Guinness. Now, the barman pouring the Guinness, he says, listen, Seamus, I don't mean to pry, you've come in here for a year, maybe more, always ordering four pints. But today you order three. What's going on? Well, says Seamus, got to tell you, he says, I have got two brothers and a father. And they're all in different parts of the world. And so every week, I have a drink. One for me, one for my first brother, one for my second brother, and one for my father. Just a little ritual. That's beautiful. But he said, sadly, my father passed away. And this little ritual is for the living. So I have a drink for myself and my two brothers. Well, says the barman, I'm sorry for your troubles. It's fine. This goes on for a while. And then Seamus comes in one day. He orders two pints of Guinness. Barman's cleaning the glass, says, listen, I'm sorry to ask, has something happened to one of your brothers? Seamus says, no, 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 don't worry about it. No, 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 not at all, not at all. He says, tell you the truth, doctor's orders, I've had to stop drinking. Right? Now, <laughs> slow, yep. <yeah. laughs> no, it's, um, this, this for me, articulates a very common human experience, that we can enact consciously different things than we believe. That, you know, it's very simple. Like, um, we, we, for example, none of you, I don't think any of you believe that a duvet cover, is that what you call it in America, a duvet cover? No. You know a cover for your bed? A blanket? A blankie? <laughs> He doesn't sleep in anything as well. I, it's nice to live with the guy. I know that. I saw some horrific things. I still can't blink. Haven't blinked ever since. Um, uh, yeah, so none of you think that a duvet cover can protect you from a knife attack or a criminal who breaks into your house. None of you believe that. Except if you hear a noise downstairs. And then some of you get all Harry Potter style. Put the cover over your head, think it's an invisibility cloak, or think that it's some sort of protective thing. None of you probably believe in ghosts until you hear a creak under the bed, and then you don't want to put your foot down in case the monster gets you, right? The interesting thing about being human is we actually live between what we think we believe and what we believe. I always find it weird. I'm going to say this. I don't want to take up too much time. But I always find it weird that people, he, uh, today we, we are always about, what do you believe? What do you believe? I had a guy, he has a podcast, who said to me, Pete, I've read your stuff, I've watched your podcast, I've done all of that. I, I don't know what you believe. I want you to get on my podcast. And I'm going to ask you questions, I'm going to find out what you believe. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I believe. I'll be, I'll be really honest with you. I believe I don't know what I believe. I believe that coming to know what you believe is an incredibly difficult thing. That our consciousness is basically designed to protect you from knowing what you believe. I know people, I've got a friend from Florida who says, I don't believe in God anymore, so the only thing I'm sure of is I'm going to go to hell, right? Now, <laughs> that's, you know, he, he doesn't think he believes, but he does. 
I had this with, there was another podcast I was on where the two guys are ex-pastors, and the guy was trying to say, are you a theist? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? I'm like, I'm not talking, I'm talking about you believe in God, because he told me that every time that he's in an airplane and it like shudders, he thinks, oh my goodness, this is my time. Am I going to meet Jesus and he's going to send me to the pit of hell? Like, you still believe. The, the weird thing is we are not transparent to ourselves. There's a story. I, I'm bringing out a, a book of fairy tales very soon. In fact, tomorrow I'm meeting with the, uh, the illustrator. He lives just up north somewhere. Uh, Canada, I don't know. No, no, not that far. Uh, uh, but, you know, I'm very excited. It's called Enduring Love. Enduring love, because love is so horrifically difficult to endure, right? And it's, it's about these furry little animals in this forest. And they're, and they're all having trouble with love. You know, some of them have to kill themselves. Some of them, are, you know, get overdrawn bank and they get, like, bankrupt. And it's a very depressing. It's called the Lonely Forest. Did I say that? It's just a stone's throw from the Hundred Acre Wood. Um, but, uh, but the Hundred Acre Wood's a little bit happier than this place. So w- one of the stories, I'll just tell you, one of the stories is about this little field mouse. He's down on his luck, right? He, uh, you know, the recession's hit hard. Uh, he's lost his job. He's, he lives in the 100 acre wood, but there's just no work there. Uh, house prices are too high. He's in, it's terrible. But he hears there's a job in, in the lonely forest. So he goes there. I love the fact that you've actually got notes and you're waiting. Will, will he ever actually say something that I can actually take a note about? <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm here. I mean, it's the, I'm, I'm ready to hear something. Actually, like, yeah. I don't want to hear about the field mice. You do want to hear about the field mice. I'm doing this fine. Thank you very much. You're my, you're my motivator. Marcus Aurelius had someone who walked around. It was the opposite, and always said, "You're going to die," uh, which I really like, because, because actually, oh yeah, that was a Roman thing. Anyway, beside the point. You're the opposite. Don't tell me that. I don't want to know. Um, so this little, little field mice, very, very sad. But here's there's a job. Now, it's nothing great. It's definitely below his skill set. But he's getting older. And the jobs aren't there. It's just putting nuts into acorns, right, on a conveyor belt, a conveyor belt job. Beggars can't be choosers. So he moves, gets the job, which is great, starts up, moves all his stuff to a tree stump, and begins his work. Well, as luck would have it, he falls in love with this beautiful squirrel. And... They, they're just so good together. They have a great time. They're always laughing and dancing and walking. It's wonderful. But this little field mouse is very insecure. Very insecure. He's always wondering, does she really love me? Does this squirrel really love me? So he always asks, do you love me? And she always says the same thing. Of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day, and I will love you till the day that I die. But it never really sinks in. So one day, he's out for a smoke break, and the slimy frog, who's his uh, kind of line manager, is out there as well. They're having a cigarette, and the slimy frog says, here, mate, what's up? And the little field mouse says, well, I'm really in love, but I'm very, very jealous. And I always... I'm unsure whether she loves me. Well, do you ask her? Yes. And what does she say? Well, she says she loves me. She says she loved me the day she met me. She loves me this very day. She will love me till the day that she dies. There you go. Yeah, but I don't know if she's telling the truth. I don't know if she's really telling me the honest desires of her heart. So the slimy frog says, well, here, I'll tell you what. There's a, a, a lake in the heart of the forest. It's called the Lake of Truth. And it's said that if you drink from the lake, you can hear the thoughts of the, of the animal you're with, just for a few seconds. But imagine you go there, you drink up the water, and then you ask her, then you'll know. So he arranges on Saturday to go down to the Lake of Truth. They have a walk. When they're passing it, he goes, oh, I'm very hot. I'm very parched. So he goes down and he he sips some water, then he runs up and he says to the squirrel, listen, just one more time, can I ask you, do you love me? And sure enough, she says, of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day. And I will love you until the day that I die. Now he waits. He waits. And then he hears her inner thoughts. Of course I love you. I loved you the day I met you. I love you this very day. I will love you till the day that I die. Well, he's elated. Wonderful, it's amazing, brilliant. Oh, and I have a wonderful day. But after a week, he stops going to work. Nobody sees him 
Slimy Frog gets worried. Then eventually he comes back to work and he's so down on the conveyor belt, putting the nuts into the shells. So the Slimy Frog says, come out, let's have a smoke break. They have a cigarette. The Slimy Frog said, what happened? Well, turns out the squirrel was having an affair with another mouse. A mouse with shinier fur and a wetter nose. What? 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 But what about the lake of truth? Well, was it broken? No, said the field mice. Was it cursed? Said the field mice. No, was it a lying lake? No, said the field mice. You don't understand, do you? She didn't love me. She only thought that she did. If you've ever seen the film What Women Want by Mel Gibson, shame on you, shame on you. Yeah. It's a, no, it, 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 it plays on this theme. He has a, this guy has an electric shock, and now he can hear what women want because he can hear their inner thoughts. But the, the problem with the film is, of course, the Freudian problem. Because Freud says, if you could hear someone's inner thoughts, you would be no closer to what they want. Because we don't know what we want. We don't know what we believe. That's why you go to therapy, because you don't know what you believe. People often look as if they believe that they're the greatest thing that God has given the world. Usually they're very insecure and hate themselves. You know, we actually have defense mechanisms. I was in a pub recently with a guy who told me, I used to want to be a writer. I used to want to be a speaker. I said, I gave all of that up. I don't care about that anymore. I've done other things. Great. But then he told me at six times in 30 minutes, Six times in a row. This is called reaction formation, where you say the opposite so much that it's, it's kind of like, actually, you're telling me that that's the very thing you want. Like if someone always says they're happy on Facebook, you know they're sad. Um, it's like, because you're like, if you're happy, you're not going to tell everybody you're happy. Oh, I've got a real brilliant relationship. I eat loads of great food. I have fantastic coffee. Everything's wonderful. I am very sorry. Right? But no, they're not lying to you. They're often lying to themselves, you know? Um, and and, that's, and the, the evidence is the opposite. We have to stop. Okay, well, I'm going to round this all up. Very good. Thank you. That was well done. Very subtle. I don't think anybody noticed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, all of this to say that we live between who we are, who we'd like to be, what we think and our unconscious drives, and what we'd like, and what we have and what we'd like to have. And this causes all manner of problems. And there are religions of hedonism that promise they will make you who you want to be and give you what you want to have. And there are religions of nihilism that say, accept nothingness, accept the way things are and give up the, the future. And then there, there is a third option. But I don't have time to talk about that. Thank you. <laughs> Trip Fuller, a man of which we have karaoke together, smoked cigars together, we have danced together, and the doctor, the good doctor and I have also camped close together where you can actually get an audio of his snoring if you'd like later. We should play that, Trip. Trip is a great snore. All right, here you go, Trip. You, Tim, only 10 minutes. Is it, is it possible? No. I'm going to do 10 minutes. I'm going to do 10 minutes, Pete. You remember that time? I don't know, an hour and a half ago where you're like, no, 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 we don't need 20, we need 10. We could do two sessions, 10, 10, they talk, 10, 10, they talk. Uh-huh, we'll see. Well, you went 32. So uh, if you could all remember that at the beginning of Pete's talk, he said he was going to talk about death and then proceeded to do a man running away from death's theme song, namely like Rocky. Uh, so if you could just close your eyes, I have a theme song. Now, I've never done this before, but since uh, we already set expectations on the tech tonight that you could uh, throw your cell phone playing songs into a microphone into a karaoke machine. Uh, well, well, with all eyes closed and heads bowed, this is a song exploring death. Uh, when you flinch with 
very violent images, just open your eyes and we'll know that you've come to the Lord and or tapped out. dog tell you you're going to hell or you're going to die. They also don't flinch when they fart in your room late at night. And you also have silent judgment right now because there was that uncle that one time that got pissed and kicked your dog. But it was like a love kick. That's what my mom told me. My uncle, I won't name his name right now because this might be on the internet. But you know who you are. You don't even eat yeast rolls at Thanksgiving. Yeah, I judge people that don't eat yeast rolls at Thanksgiving. Because even people that hate carbohydrates or their body doesn't want them to eat it, eat yeast rolls at Thanksgiving. Because there is no better holiday to celebrate and cover over American Empire than Thanksgiving. You can fit violent activities like football empire inspired gluttony and colonizing all in that experience where my uncle I'm not naming his name kicked my puppy (laughs) the worst version of that song is when Willie Nelson sings it and by worse I mean I cry because I've seen Willie Nelson in concert 17 times. And Willie Nelson and family, like basically the first 20 minutes he sings something he wrote in the last 20 years. And then the last 50, it's the greatest hits of Willie Nelson, which may as well be if I was in charge of the next Pentecost, like the third great awakening, it would be Willie Nelson family. Uh, the first time I saw him was at Austin City Limits. Has anyone ever been to the Austin City Limits Festival? Yeah, I don't remember it either, but it was great. <laughs> I went with my buddy Chad, and we started the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast. That's an aside, because I'm supposed to tell you a story about death. And then Pete's like, I'm not going to actually talk about death. I was like, then why'd you say that's a theme? Well, I'm going to talk about something that matters and dies, and then you like to figure out stuff about it. And then I start ignoring him, because sometimes he's so good looking with an accent, you get distracted. <laughs> and so, I only have one European accent, and it's French, but I use it for everybody, because you're allowed to do that if you're a Southerner. You're actually not, but no one tells you that, because it's real awkward. Because they're already creeped out that you have a southern accent. Just do a PhD at the most progressive theological institution on the West Coast. And you show up. And you have my accent when I moved there that talks like this. And I showed up in an eco-feminist philosophy class. (laughs) And on my first day in that class, I showed up early because I was so excited about the intersectionality of science, gender, Class and liberating all these people from the ideological captured minds of consumer capitalism that's destroying the planet. And I was so uber pumped. I'm not sure I said uber pumped when I lived in North Carolina, but I should have because people appreciate uber pumped. Well, I showed up in this class and I did not actually believe people when they said 28 miles of driving could be two and a half hours. So I was driving 28 miles to my school, and it was two and a half hours, and I had 12 minutes before class started at a campus I've never been to before. And at, at Burger King, it said, buy one, get one free Whoppers. 
And I thought, the Lord has provided indeed. So I rolled my junk through there. And uh, I showed up in my eco-feminist philosophy class. And I realized there are 13 people in this PhD seminar. There's only one straight white male. And it's me. And I'm like, friends. We're going to be friends. I'm rolling in with my Burger King bag. And uh, one of my friends, we're actually really good friends now. So she's told me I could tell the story. So, like, don't get awkward. You know how, like, when you hear a minister tell a story and you're like, does this involve me avoiding hell? Are you allowed to tell this story? Have you talked to your wife? Yes, uh, Brianne and I have talked. I'm allowed to tell this story. And she said, you're a better person in your version of it than I remember. But my, my preaching professor told me, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And you just saw that on display, Pete. Like, actually, Seamus, Seamus doesn't exist, but he insists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I show up in this class, and uh, we're all trying to, like, meet and greet. And it's clear that somebody invaded this group of uh, Ph.D. students' space. But I was not clear about this. I was just jovial with excitement. I said, who gets to have a class with Philip Clayton and Rosemary Radford Ruther? I do. This is like I'm going to jump for joy. And, uh, well, my soon-to-be not-so-friend, eventually very good friend, Brienne, says to her friend, yeah, I'm just so hungry. Now, I do not know that she's an eco-feminist Jane. Jane being the religion. Uh, and I said, well, it was buy one, get one free Whoppers at Burger King if you want one. And she left with tears. And I said, what happened? And a very well-meaning third year said, it's okay, country boy. You'll learn. And I was like, what, what, what about it? Uh, she's Jane. Well, then Phil walks in. And I'm like, Phil. I don't know what I just did, but Jane just left crying. She said she was hungry, and I offered her a Whopper. And he said, there's no one in this class named Jane. I was like, no, 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 no. She, she told me that it was Jane that left. And then, that's a religion. And I said, oh, well, that's not too, my bad. Um, so, like, when I think of the death of ideas, I think of moments where you've clinged on to something so long that all of a sudden your good and best intuitions have put you in a situation where the ideology and the commitments you had are so out of place. I mean, you may have experienced this recently. You may have been watching a press conference. And then all of a sudden ideas from, like, the 18th century vomited on the screen and even people who have for months spent their time covering up over a shitstorm were like don't do it and they had the face of someone with an ingrown hair in their nose and it was like you had tweezers you're like i'm not pulling out an extra hair i'm grabbing that one and they're like you like you anticipate crying when you have an ingrown hair in your nose i see the people with ingrown hairs like yeah i know about that if you've ever had ingrown hair in your nose, the, the eye, like that you need to pull it out to free whatever's underneath it. We don't have to discuss the pus bubbles. But when you want to release that tension, you start crying in anticipation. That was the face of everyone behind Donald Trump as he proceeded to vomit ideology from 250 years ago. And they're like, oh, no, you're not supposed to say this in public. It's like you just offered a whopper to a Jane in an eco-feminist philosophy class. And so for a second, I had a little sympathy for Trump, but then I remembered he was a racist asshole. So, um, and, but when you have one of those times where the Holy Lord Jesus rips an ingrown hair right out of your nostril and pus flies out in blood and everyone sees it, it is an opportunity for growth. So praise be his name, maybe Don, the Don is moving forward. Uh, there's always opportunities for growth. But um, that was my intro. Because I had found 10 minutes could be 30. So I do want to tell you one story, and then we're going to talk about it. We all are going to talk, and then we'll talk back and forth. 
It's, it's important for me to hand the mic off to Pete. So for the next two days, I'm like, you're the one that goes over. Because he's given me shit for years of being the long-winded one. All right, so how many people grew up in a family? I only have two minutes. Well, then I'm going to use five extra. How many people grew up in a very conservative Christian family? All right. All right, then you may have had this experience. Now, how many of you were sword drill champs? Oh, hell yeah, that's right. This is like the Knights Guard of Westeros up in this piece. All right, so this is for y'all. When I was in fourth grade, I was a Baptist preacher's kid in the South. So, like, you shit the King James. Amen. And, and it was Lent. But we didn't call it that because that was Romanish, which is called Catholic, a religion you have tracks to witness to. Um, and, but in preparation for Easter, I decided to level up my Bible game so that I could mock my friends because nothing is more Christian than out-bibling your Christian friends and shame them into reading the Bible more. Because you and I both know that if you read the Bible more, you don't screw people over and hurt them and act unjustly. It's obvious. I mean, just look at the life of David. <laughs> See, only people that read the Bible laugh. If you haven't, you're like, I fear he's a nice guy. Like, I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I got it was good. So, I decide... Getting ready for Easter, I'm going to read all four Gospels' passion stories. But I'm also a Baptist, so I'm going to chart them. <laughs> My mom's a teacher, so I get the big roll-out white paper, and I'm outlining, like, what happens on what days and how, what junk goes down. Obviously, I mean, most important, like, week of existence, unless you enjoy eternal conscious torment. We're not going to vote. Uh... Well, so it gets like on uh, Friday of Easter week. This is it's normally called Good Friday unless you're an evangelical because every day's good. <laughs> A good day to come to the Lord. <laughs> and um, so it was Friday, and I called my parents in at night because I had like matured enough to do my own Bible study at night like a PK does, rolling deep with the KJV and shit. So, I call him in. I'm like, look, Mom, Dad, my Bible's broken. And they were like, what? Yeah, I'm going to need to get a new one of these. And they're like, why is it broken? I have a chart. So, I roll my little piece of paper out. Like, I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible you gave me, Jesus dies on different days. And my parents were not shocked. So I was worried about their salvation. <laughs> and then I'm like, do you know, they haven't even clarified who saw the resurrected Jesus first. And they didn't flinch again. I thought, Nixon had better cover-up abilities than this. <laughs> and then I'm like, he doesn't even say the same thing while he's dying. If there's a main character of a movie, and I've watched it five times, I know what they say when they're dying. Like, you don't flash back to Braveheart, and you know he's like, freedom! But you don't accidentally slide in. My God, why have you forsaken me? Forget them for they know not what they do! Like, you don't slide that in. But the gospel writers did. And I was very concerned, so I, like, had, I had dutifully written them out, you know, with the, like, chapter and verse things on there. I was like, no, just look at it. And my parents looked at it, and my dad and mom were discussing, and they're like, no, that's right. That's what they all say. And I'm like, well, what's up with that? And from that moment on, my parents, I, I found this out later. I did not know this then. But they made a parenting decision never to answer questions I had that they thought I was taking seriously. So after that, when I would have a question that was very serious, my dad would go, or my mom, depending on who I asked, they were like, you know, here's a really good book about that. You should read it, and we'll talk about it. Because they found out that if they gave me a conclusion, I would ruin it, which is how you end up being a musical theater and philosophy major. <laughs> um... <laughs> And, and I remember that experience 
for the very purpose that, like, their refusal to give me an answer to a question actually was the context where I came into it, understand and experience my faith as something that was living, that was my own, that had its own internal integrity, and it wasn't connected to my family, the Bible, or the stories they told me I had to believe in such. But it also was extremely terrifying because I had to, like, mute certain voices. One of them is named Andrea. She taught VBS, which is short for Vacation Bible School, which is Latin for spend a week getting people hopped up on sugar, getting them tired, and explaining the possibility of their eternal conscious torment to them. <laughs> With an opt-out, namely hot dogs, ice cream, and Jesus. And on day four of this, as a young child, I... Uh, I got in trouble at home. Now, I'm the oldest in my family, and oldest children get in trouble the most. That's what I tell myself to justify the difference between my brother and I's moral failings. Um, so on behalf of him, I would try to demonstrate where boundaries were. So I got in trouble. Uh, I don't even remember what it was for. My wife says that's continued. Um, that I don't remember what I did. But... I do remember the response. It was like somehow after four days of ice cream, hot dogs, and very, very child-friendly description of Dante's Inferno. I mean, it wasn't. It was never in Latin. Um, I, all of a sudden, my, mom, my mom's sitting there with me, and she's like, Trip, you're lying to me. And I paused for a second. And it, in my head, I was like, I am, but I don't want you to know that. And I, I was like, but Andrea has a very descriptive account of eternal conscious torment. And I might go to hell. And in that moment, I remember thinking, oh, junk. And my mom's version of this is different. She said I just started crying for no reason. No, no, no. There's a point in time where all of a sudden those stories act at different levels of kind of your existential register. And so, like, at one point they show up and you like, oh, junk. They really believe that's true, so it must be true. And I might, if I died right now, my parents are like, oh, well, Jesus, he's going to hell. And it's true. And then eventually you get older and you're like, man, I can't believe I believe that. But there's a moment where them junks hit hard. And that was that moment. I start freaking out, and my mom's like, no, 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 Trip, I, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, I don't know. I might be going to hell. And I start running, and I leave the parsonage and sprint down to my father's office, and I run in. And, uh, and this is his version. I don't remember this part that much. I just remember that after the Lord came in my heart, we went to Pizza Hut. Praise the Lord. So <laughs> I run in, and I'm like, Dad, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he's like, you what? I don't know. That's what I was told. You know? And, 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 and he's like, oh, my goodness. And I, 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 what's going on? He's like, if you don't do that prayer that you're supposed to be able to do, I could go to hell. And Dad's like, okay, just repeat after me. And Dad later's like, that Andrea never taught vacation Bible school again. <laughs> I was like, I preached very hard to avoid this ever happening. <laughs> and then it did. Uh, but it was extremely real for me. So real that in the middle of the prayer, I, now I can't explain this part. Like, I just stuck my hand in an iron fan, and it cut it. So there's like a little scar on my finger. That's how I remember the story. I got a scar. My mom brought a Band-Aid over. We taped it up, and we went to Pizza Hut. Because when you're, you know... 50 to 90 or 120, depending on how Pete's science works out for the extension of life, uh, ends. I got infinity, infinity years, like singing really sweet praise songs in heaven. So I got a scar and a pizza hut. Um, now, I say that because in people's lives and journey of faith, there are kind of three big moments that, uh, uh, that actually, like, you know, like social scientists and psychologists and anthropologists give fancy names. I came up with shorthands for it 
which might inspire conversations. So uh, this is 15-year youth ministry veteran trying to pass off for moments where you share other than talk about ideas, but you share experiences of yourself. Uh, a help, it's like a bump set, and now you just have to spike it when you share your own story. It's like the first moment is when you've realized that you've been handed a tradition, and the tradition is a tradition. It's not everything truth has ever been. And you're just like, well, there's that. So there's some moment where the thing you walked around going, this is the cloak of gold, the golden egg, turned out to be one among many golden cloaks and golden eggs. And you go, well, there's that. The second moment is where you go, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, that ain't good enough. Where then the religious people from your tribe start giving you answers to questions that are excellent and the answers suck. It could be your parent, it could be your minister, it could be your friends, it could be your, quote, accountability partners, end quote. But they're just, you ask a question like, why are people born to suffer and die? And they're like, total depravity. Or like, <laughs> you know, they start giving you answers. And you're like, uh-uh-uh-uh, that ain't good enough. And sometimes your faith ends up being shaped by a question that's so good, you insist the answer doesn't suck. And in that moment and part of your life, having a question that is worth an answer that doesn't suck is the most faithful thing you can do while flicking off the other 99% of your faith. That's what faith looks like. I could list off examples in Scripture that all do this. Even Jesus did it, so it's okay. And then the third moment is the plant the flag moment. It's where you're like, I don't know what the hell's going on, but at least my life will be one where this one thing is attempted to live out beautifully. And it's your touchstone. For me, it was in the passion story, the gospel of Luke, in college when I had like post-structuraled my way out of any religion. And I was a high-quality post-structuralist, nihilist, who would ruin every party. You know, six drinks in, and you're playing beer pong and playing some Counting Crows songs. Like I could probably do the entire first album straight through. By probably, I mean, yes. Um, and you start having fun, but then there's that person that's like, this is just a collective drug-intoxicated deferral from the impending nihilism of our death. And they're like, you're ruining our party trip. And I'm like, I'm not ruining it. The universe has structured things this way. You know, and I would come up with ways everything was horrible. Uh, and and yet, then as a science, like a person into philosophy of science, I realized social science said that your quality of life was better if you existed in a community with a shared fiction, namely a mythology, namely like some historic text, stories, and things that you interpret as you interpret your life, the community, and well-being in the world. And I was out to arbitrarily pick one. I tried being a Taoist, but I'm ADD. Um, it didn't work out well. And so uh, I was, it was in Lent. And even though I had a hangover for being a Bible thumper, like I still read the Bible even though I didn't believe in God. Um, that's like being a Baptist preacher's kid. It's, you're like, screw God. But obviously it's Lent, so I should read the Bible. I, uh, <laughs> and I got to the Gospel of Luke again because I would read the uh, things I charted out continuously every Lent. I still do, uh, among other things. And I read Cost of Discipleship every Advent. Um, so... I get, I get there, and in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, this is the one where Jesus is talking to his homeboys up on the cross. I realize that's kind of deflationary. I'm sorry. Um, and one of them's like, this dude's a loser. And the other one's like, no, he's awesome. Maybe you can hang out with me later in paradise. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't. Before the day's in, we'll be like, you know, it's 5 o'clock in heaven. And <laughs> so there's that. that wasn't that interesting to me. Because I was still a good enough Christian. I wasn't going to drink before I was 21 or married. <sighs> Try to preserve my witness. So, uh, but then he goes, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, as someone on the hunt for arbitrarily embracing a historic community with symbols of story, myth, and experiences so they can frame their meaningless finitude within a community, uh, so that you can reap the social science benefits of belonging to such. Uh, I thought, well, if you're going to arbitrarily pick something, it should at least be one where the non-existent ultimate reality is nice. So if you have, like, 
the dude that's representing that, and Jesus is like, Father, forgive them. Like, that's high quality. But that wasn't what pushed it over the edge. That night, I remember it. It was crazy. And uh, I don't know if I was going to be filled with the Spirit, it would have been that moment. It was the, for they know not what they do line. And I was like, oh, shit. Someone spitting game on behalf of the ultimate? And the conclusion of his sentence is they don't know what they're doing. Well, that's the most honest, straightforward assessment of human beings. It gives us a level of freedom and opportunity we had no idea we could have. You don't know what you're doing, so stop, stop stressing out so much about it. You don't know what you're doing, so don't try to figure out the final answer to anything. You don't know what you're doing, so don't try to, like, lose hours of time praying to some Calvinist deity trying to figure out God's will for your life. You don't know what you're doing. Jesus already told you, so get over it. But since you don't know what you're doing, you may as well try to live a life that's beautiful enough that whatever the ultimate mystery of existence is, it's one that if you use language... It borders on personal, familial, and relational. It's one where the first words out of your mouth when you're dying for no reason of your own, you say, Abba, forgive them. And if something's going to be true, at least embraced arbitrarily as a good post-structuralist, I was like, I'm going to pick this narrative, this myth, in this world. And so I hope when your conversations, you think about those three moments, like, what was the time you had the question that you're like, this question is so good, I can't take your stupid answers. What was that moment where you planted your flag and you're like, I ain't got an answer for nothing else, but if something's going to be true, it should be this because it's beautiful. And where was that moment early in your life? Because there ain't nobody that hadn't had this moment that shows up at Brew Theology where the world that was handed to you just smelled bad. Kind of like my pocket. Uh, fish. I, my fish oil medicine popped in my pocket. And so my wallet now smells. So if I stick my hand in here and go like this, horrible. <laughs> and so there's probably a part of the faith you were handed. Handed, get it? It went in my pocket. Then you go, fish oil. <laughs> and uh, so think about those three moments and talk amongst yourself. And then uh, who knows what's going to happen next. Because... Ryan's going to tell you. That was great. That was awesome. Thank you, Trip Fuller. Dr. Reverend Trip Fuller. We have some giveaways. Giveaways. Thank you all so much for listening. If you liked that episode, please share it online. And if you'd like for us to come to your community, please just give me the email, ryan at ruththeology.org and janelle at ruththeology.org. We'd love to partner with you in the days ahead. And keep brewing theology. Peace.